Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, January 5th, my birthday, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa Topsher with your top stories today. And happy birthday, Adam. Thank you, Melissa. Mitch McConnell becomes the longest serving Senate party leader. Russia revises the Makivka death toll to 89. Florida Governor DeSantis is sworn in for a second term. Sri Lanka announces its first election amid recent unrest. The suspect in the killing of four Idaho undergrads agrees to be extradited. Jerusalem's Anglican Archbishop denounces the desecration of a cemetery. Colombia's ELN rebel group denies agreeing to a ceasefire. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried pleads not guilty. Twitter says it will allow political advertising. And the U.S.'s FDA approves the sale of abortion pills at retail pharmacies. In our first story, McConnell breaks the U.S. Senate leadership record. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, PBS NewsHour, The Hill, Bloomberg, and The Independent. Senator Mitch McConnell became the longest-serving Senate party leader on Tuesday, surpassing the late Senator Mike Mansfield, Democrat of Montana. McConnell became party leader in 2007. McConnell celebrated his accomplishment by delivering a speech to the Senate floor, during which he recounted the history of past party leaders and their respective styles, and even praised Mansfield. The 80-year-old McConnell was elected to the Senate in 1984, serving a stint as Senate GOP whip from 2003 to 2007 under former Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist, Republican of Tennessee. McConnell, who defeated a challenge to his leadership late last year, has been a crucial player in the party and Senate during his tenure. In 2011, he orchestrated a deal that put a limit on government spending and raised the debt limit. More recently, he made sure Republicans had a large say about what was in the $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill late last year. Other highlights of McConnell's career include negotiating a deal in 2012 that made Republican President George W. Bush's tax cuts permanent and voting for President Biden's $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan in 2021. McConnell's hold on his Senate position especially contrasts with the House, given House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's struggle to become Speaker of the House. Thank you, Melissa. On our Improve the News podcast, we separate the fact from the narrative spin. Here we have two narrative spins, the first being a pro-establishment narrative, and it's provided by CNN. McConnell is the archetype of a strong and intelligent statesman. He has demonstrated a willingness to reach across the aisle, enjoying good relationships with many high-ranking Democratic leaders. Indeed, his style of politics has been marked by compromise and the ability to craft fair and intelligent deals. Even as the Republican Party experiences internal strife, McConnell's political acumen has guaranteed his position as a top leader. And the establishment critical narrative is provided by Breitbart. McConnell is just another establishment snake in the grass who only looks out for big business and the political class. His laundry list of betrayals to the conservative movement include an ever-increasing national debt, continued illegal immigration, the stagnation of real wages, bailing out banks in 2008, and enacting Obamacare in 2010. More recently, he has enabled Biden to pass leftist policies, including giving Ukraine billions in aid, tightening gun laws, and attacking MAGA Republicans. 
Boy, they, they either like McConnell or they don't like McConnell. There is no middle ground on this. There is not. And it's really funny to see it come from the right now. Yeah. Either you're on the bus or you're off the bus. If McConnell's not playing along, they're not liking him. I think it's a, it's looking like it's a good time for McConnell to think about retirement. Yeah, let's go enjoy yourself. Go enjoy the rest of your life. You're 80, Mitch. Come on. Yeah, let it go. Your kids are going to take the car keys away from you soon. I mean, get, <laughs> get some driving in. Go to Winnebago. See, see the country. There you go. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. It's day 315 in the situation in Ukraine as Russia revises the Makivka death toll to 89 and blames phones. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Fox News, and Ukraine Forum. The death toll from a New Year's Eve attack on a temporary Russian barracks in the Donetsk city of Makivka has risen to 89, Russia's defense ministry said late on Tuesday. Initially, 63 soldiers were reported killed, but the figure rose following further searches of the debris, the ministry said. In a press conference, Lieutenant General Sergei Serufkov told reporters that prohibited and large-scale use of personal phones was to blame. Serufkov said this factor enabled the enemy to take the bearing and determine coordinates of servicemen location to deliver a missile strike. Required measures are being taken at present to exclude such tragic incidents in the future. On Wednesday, Sarufkov told reporters the Multiple Launch Rocket System, or MLRS, using which the Ukrainian armed forces had shelled Bukhivka, was destroyed by the return fire. In the attack on Drukhivka railway station, in addition to four MLRS, Russia alleged to have destroyed four high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, munitions and other vehicles. They also said 200 Ukrainian nationals and 130 mercenaries from, quote, the Foreign Legion were, quote, destroyed. Russia's claims on damages couldn't be independently confirmed. Without reporting military losses, Ukrainian media reported that the attacks on Druskivka destroyed the Altair ice rink and damaged the bus station, a church, and buildings of the Mann Hotel. There were no reports of civilian injuries. Meanwhile, in the last day, Russian attacks have continued to be recorded in the regions of Donetsk, Nipopetrovsk, Kherson, Kharkiv, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia. One civilian was reported killed and five were injured in Donetsk, while four people were killed and five more injured in Kherson. Two civilians were reported injured in Zaporizhia, and two more were injured in Kharkiv. Thank you, Adam, for the update on the situation. We've got several spins, starting with an anti-Russia narrative provided by Ukraine Forum. Russia's attacks on Druskivka are another example of its actions as a terrorist state. The ice rink was beloved by many in the community and was used to deliver humanitarian aid. A bus station, a church, and a hotel were also damaged. And there's also a pro-Russian narrative, and it's provided by TASS. Russia's attacks on Druskivka targeted the rocket launchers and weaponry that targeted Makivka. Ukrainian soldiers and foreign mercenaries were also killed. These attacks were on legitimate military targets. 
And there's a nerd narrative saying there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Florida Governor DeSantis is sworn in for a second term. Here are the facts as agreed upon by One America, Business Insider, CNN, Politico, and New York Times. Amid questions surrounding a potential 2024 presidential run, Ron DeSantis on Tuesday was sworn into his second term as governor of Florida. He was accompanied by his wife, three children, and former Governor Jeb Bush. DeSantis took his oath in front of the state's capital, where the Tallahassee streets were renamed Ron DeSantis Way for the day. He spoke before more than 4,000 attendees as banners hung behind him that read, The Free State of Florida. In a 15-minute address, DeSantis called Florida under his watch a promised land of sanity, adding that the state, quote, is where the woke goes to die, end quote. The governor's re-election victory in November was the widest margin in a Florida governor race in four decades. During the speech, DeSantis didn't detail his top priorities for his second term or touch on topics such as gun rights or abortion restrictions. Rather, he focused on juxtaposing Florida with other states and the federal government, though he didn't mention President Biden by name. DeSantis criticized what he called a floundering federal establishment, as well as the government's pandemic restrictions and mandates. Though seen as a likely 2024 candidate, DeSantis hasn't stated whether he will run for president or commit to serving another full term as governor. Thank you, Melissa, for laying out the facts. We've got a Democratic narrative for this story, and it's provided by New Republic. DeSantis, like his fellow Republicans, is against real governance and would rather spend his time targeting the so-called woke agenda with authoritarian impulses. DeSantis should be careful, despite being hyped by supporters as the future face of the GOP, as his continued onslaught against minorities and progressive values may come back to bite him on a national stage. And the Republican narrative is provided by Fox News. As the Republicans in Washington debate which establishment elitist to anoint as House Speaker, DeSantis' inauguration speech has inspired further praise and speculation surrounding the 2024 presidential run. Rallying against far-left ideology, global elites, and government overreach, DeSantis is not only a top contender for the White House, but someone who could co-headline the primary circuit with Trump. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They say there's a 30% chance that Ron DeSantis will become U.S. president by 2029. And that's according to the Metaculus prediction community. Are people still saying woke? Is woke still such a thing? Really anymore? Not that... as much as an insult anymore. I think that got squashed because uh, because they realized how silly that was to use as an insult. This could turn around and like be his downfall if he keeps it. It could be like what killed Hillary Clinton, like you know that Pokemon go to the polls type thing where people just went, <laughs> "Oh, really, Grandma?" <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you know, if he's all. Make sure you woke up and go to the polls and people are like, oh, Ron. Uh. Yeah, I have to kind of agree. I think Florida is a different state than the rest of the U.S. Um, not that it's alone in its thinking, but yeah, you might have to be a little more careful with your words on a national stage. I, I agree. I agree with that last statement there. I think some stuff might get thrown at him if he's not careful. I, I did miss the word woke, though. I'm glad to see it's back. <laughs> Sri Lanka plans to hold its first election since unrest. 
And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Times of India, Economy Next, RFI, and Colombo Page. Sri Lankan officials announced on Wednesday that local government polls would be held by the end of February, marking the country's first nationwide elections since former President Gotabaya Rajapaska fled and resigned in the face of widespread protests. The National Election Commission stated it will accept nominations from January 18th to the 21st for the local council polls, which have been postponed since March of last year, adding that a date for the elections would be set a week thereafter. Elections need to be held before March 10th, as members of the local government bodies must be appointed by March 20th, but a writ petition has also been filed before the Supreme Court asking to suspend elections due to Sri Lanka's ongoing currency crisis. This comes after the Election Commission disregarded attempts by Parliament-elected President Ramil Wickremesinghe to stall the polls on claims that the crisis-hit country cannot afford to pay the $27.6 million they would cost. Inflation has reached a near 70% record this year, as the country has faced acute shortages of electricity, food, and fuel since late 2021, with the former Rajapaska government defaulting on Sri Lanka's $46 billion external debt in April. Last week, Sri Lankan Minister of State for Finance Shihan Simashinge declared that the government strongly believes that the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, will formally approve Sri Lanka's $2.9 billion bailout in the first quarter of 2023. Thank you, Adam. We'll start this round of spins with Narrative A, provided by Nikkei Asia. Local elections must be welcomed as the first step to restoring normalcy in Sri Lanka, following months of nationwide protests, along with political and economic turmoil. Softening dissent and providing stability for the country, however, will require general elections so as to ensure those implementing reforms have a public mandate. And Narrative B is provided by FT. It should be evident by now that elections alone will not solve the Sri Lankan crisis, as it has been engendered by the very nature of the country's political system, which has focused on short-term planning for more than 75 years. Though Sri Lanka is bankrupt, Politicians remain unable to join efforts to agree on an economic framework to lift the country out of its chaos. The suspect in the University of Idaho murder waives extradition. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Fox News, ABC, Newsweek, and media entertainment arts worldwide. Brian Koberger, the 28-year-old suspect in the high-profile murder of four University of Idaho students, agreed to waive his extradition from his home state of Pennsylvania and face murder charges in Idaho. Koberger left Monroe County Correctional Facility in Pennsylvania and is in the custody of state police, according to Warden Gary Hadle. He was scheduled to land in Moscow, Idaho on Wednesday, but his arrival has not been confirmed. He was arrested last Friday as the accused murderer of the four students who died in November 2022, with law enforcement using DNA from public genealogy databases to identify him before tracking him to his home state. Former FBI agent Jennifer Coffendaffer says that she believes Koberger intends to go all the way in defending himself, but he may be willing to accept a plea deal if the DNA evidence against him is overwhelming. 
The case has garnered national attention, though information has been sparse. Police say that they can't reveal more details at this time, but information will become public as the trial proceeds. Prior to his arrest, Koberger, a Washington State University Ph.D. student, was stopped by Indiana police twice while taking a cross-country trip with his father from Washington to Pennsylvania. Melissa, thank you for the facts. Our Narrative A is provided by Fox News. While Koberger has yet to be proven guilty, his arrest and decision to waive extradition is a major turning point in a complicated and heinous case. The suspect, ironically hailed a brilliant academic in the field of criminology, made some of the most elementary mistakes that led to his arrest. It's now time for the full force of the court to bring justice for the victims and their families. And USA Today provides us with Narrative B. While this latest development is a breakthrough, Koberger should be presumed innocent until proven guilty, and no conclusions should be drawn before this trial plays out. Authorities should be left to investigate, and the victim's families should be allowed to mourn without the intrusion from social media, which has tainted an already tragic case with rumors and speculation. The Archbishop says desecration of a Jerusalem cemetery is a hate crime. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Times of Israel, Sky, BBC News, Foreign Affairs, and ABC. Jerusalem's Anglican Archbishop Hossam Naum condemned the desecration of a cemetery on Mount Zion on Wednesday, calling it a cowardly and disgusting act and a clear hate crime towards Christians. The Archbishop's comments were in response to video footage allegedly of two Jewish men who vandalized, toppled headstones, and damaged grave sites at the Protestant cemetery on Sunday afternoon. The cemetery, which was founded in 1848, is the burial place of 77 military personnel during the British Mandate period, as well as prominent Christian leaders, including Samuel Gobat, the former bishop of Jerusalem. The Anglican Church suggested the act of vandalism was motivated by religious bigotry, called for collaborative efforts to create a safer and more tolerant environment in Jerusalem, which is considered a holy city by Christians, Jews, and Muslims. The attack on the historic city comes days after Israel swore in Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister, establishing the most far-right, religiously conservative government in the country's history. Nearly 16,000 Christians live in Jerusalem, the majority of whom are Palestinian. Though Israel claims Jerusalem as its eternal capital, Palestinians generally see East Jerusalem as the capital of a future Palestinian state. Thank you, Adam. Narrative A comes from the Daily Mail. The New Year's Day attack is the latest sign of tension between Christians and Jewish extremists in Israel. In recent years, Jewish extremists seeking to cleanse their nation of religious minorities have carried out acts of vandalism at Christian sites across the country without fear of prosecution or justice. If the Netanyahu government resists preventive measures to protect the community, radical Israeli groups will ultimately drive Christians out. And a narrative B has been prepared by Wall Street Journal. While the perpetrators of this incident must be held to account, Allegations that Christians are frequently the target of sustained attacks by radical groups is baseless and distorted. Israel is a democratic state and has finally formed a popular government. 
Benjamin Netanyahu is committed to protecting the country from radical Islamists and its citizens from coercion, irrespective of their faith. The West must support Israel instead of tarnishing its image with propaganda. And the nerds are at it again with another narrative saying there's a 44% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by 2070. That's from the Metaculous Prediction Community. Turning our heads to Colombia, where the ELN rebel group denies the ceasefire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, City Paper Bogota, France 24, Merco Press, El Pais, and The Guardian. Colombia's largest remaining armed group, the Leftist National Liberation Army, or ELN, on Tuesday rejected claims that it was part of a ceasefire agreement with the government announced by President Gustavo Petro on December 31st. Petro himself, a former guerrilla member, had claimed the ELN and four other major illegal paramilitary groups had signed a six-month bilateral ceasefire agreement that would include a national and international verification mechanism and specific conditions for each group. However, the reportedly 3,000-strong ELN issued a statement denying a bilateral truce had been discussed and agreed upon with the government during negotiations, adding that it needed to review the proposal prior to any potential agreement. In response, the head of the government's negotiating team, Adi Patino, confirmed that the decree was not yet valid, conceding that nothing conclusive had been reached with the ELN. A conditional unilateral ceasefire from December 24th to January 2nd was announced by the armed group following the end of the first round of talks between Bogota and the ELN held in Caracas, Venezuela on December 12th. The next round of negotiations is set to begin in Mexico at the end of January. After taking office in August, Petro, Colombia's first left-leaning president, promised to bring total peace to Colombia by ending the country's six-decade-long conflict that has left some 450,000 dead and 8 million displaced, one of the deadliest internal conflicts in modern history. Thank you, Melissa. We have an establishment-critical narrative on this story, and it's provided by the North American Congress on Latin America. As Petro is busy fantasizing about a ceasefire with ELN, the killing in the country continues. Indeed, a historic peace deal with the FARC was reached in 2016, but the vacuum has been filled by a myriad of armed forces and the ELN, while violence and the cocoa production has only increased. To effectively combat organized crime and dry up the drug swamp, the government would have to tackle structural reforms while faced with security, logistical, and political challenges. It's doubtful that Petro will bring total peace to Colombia. And America's Quarterly has the pro-establishment narrative. There's no doubt that Petro faces a mammoth task with his plan to bring total peace to Colombia. The murder rate exceeds that of Mexico, and drug trafficking is flourishing as seldom before. Nonetheless, over 20 criminal and armed groups, including the ELN and FARC offshoots, have expressed willingness to enter peace talks with Bogota. In addition, there's a pro-government majority in Congress and a population that elected Petro precisely because the stakes could hardly be higher. The task is daunting, but if Petro succeeds, it could ripple throughout Latin America. you got to imagine every new president that comes through there is saying, Hey! I'm going to bring peace to you, total peace to Colombia. 
And it, it, it was probably a first like, oh, yay. And then a little bit, yeah. 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 And that's that's what <laughs> seems like to be the, the thought of it. Like now, it's like a lot of people have tried it before. What makes you think you're going to be any yeah, different? Yeah. Which makes it a, such a sad problem that, you know, anyone coming in from the left or the right is like, we're going to bring peace and unable to do so. Like, oh, yeah. Show us. Next. <laughs> Sam Bankman-Fried pleads not guilty. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Finance, NBC, and Fox News. On Tuesday, founder and former CEO of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, pleaded not guilty in a New York federal court. He was charged with fraud, conspiracy, violations of campaign finance law, and money laundering. Prosecutors allege that under Bankman-Fried's behest, FTX transferred billions in customer investments to his trading firm Alameda Research. A trial has been scheduled to start October 2, 2023, with Bankman-Fried facing up to 115 years in prison. Testimony from John J. Ray, the current CEO of FTX, detailed how FTX spent customer funds on crypto trading, venture capital investments, real estate purchases in the Bahamas, and more than $1 billion in loans to executives, in addition to donating around $80 million to politicians. Two of Bankman-Fried's former allies, former CEO of Alameda Research Caroline Ellison and co-founder of FTX Gary Wang, assisted the federal prosecutors in building the indictment against Bankman-Fried. Ellison and Wang pleaded guilty on December 21st. Bankman-Fried's plea comes less than two weeks after he was released on bail when his parents signed a $250 million personal recognizance bond and agreed to keep him at their home on electronic monitoring until his trial. Thanks for the facts on that story, Adam. The spin will start with the pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. A plea of not guilty was Bankman-Fried's only choice at this point because prosecutors don't seem inclined to work with him now that they have Ellison and Wang on their side. But the government's plea agreement with Bankman-Fried, who already admitted he made mistakes that he didn't think were criminal, hints at something else that might happen before he gets to trial. And there's an establishment critical narrative provided by InfoWars. Oh, wait, isn't this that guy's Alex Jones? Yeah, oh yeah, we've been quoting InfoWars quite a lot. People in power often cross ethical bridges to protect themselves and their friends. How's that sound? <laughs> there you go. That sounds like what he looks like. Yeah. People in power often cross ethical bridges to protect themselves and their friends. Bakeman Freed was a major political donor. White House logs reveal he met with Biden administration officials four times in 2022. It won't be surprising if prosecutors strike a plea deal with Bankman-Fried and hide whatever role he played in the FTX fraud to protect the highest echelons of government power. And the nerds at Metaculus have a narrative for us saying there's a 50% chance that Sam Bankman-Fried will be sentenced to at least 252 months in prison before 2030. How would you like that, being able to say, uh, mom... Dad, can I borrow $250 million, please? Ooh. But you know what? I bet you, you you think he's living in the basement. 
He's back in the basement at mom and dad's house. Right where he started. You know what? And I bet you he's got one hell of a Dungeons and Dragons campaign started up. Oh, yeah. He's going to be DMing the coolest D&D campaign ever. Oh, yeah. I got plenty of time to do that. Big plans for mom and dad's basement. (laughs) Twitter to allow political advertising. And here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent. TechCrunch, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Daily Wire, and Business Insider. After Twitter banned political ads in 2019 under former CEO and co-founder Jack Dorsey's belief that such messages should be earned and not bought, the company's new owner, Elon Musk, announced on Tuesday that it would be relaxing such policies to boost revenue. The new policy will include an overturning of the previous ban on cause-based ads, ads that encourage action related to issues such as the environment or social equality in the U.S., though the company provides no details beyond saying the ads should be geo-restricted. After opening the platform to cause-based ads, which were previously restricted from micro-targeting specific groups, the company said it would later expand to allow other forms of political advertising to align its advertising policy with that of TV and other media outlets. Advertising policy has become a heated topic since Musk's $44 billion takeover of the platform, with about 89% of its $5.1 billion revenue in 2021 coming from ads. But as of December 18th, roughly 70% of its top 100 spenders stopped purchasing ads. The new policy could open up a new source of income as the 2024 election approaches, on top of its new $8 per month Twitter Blue subscription service. Political ads are a multi-billion dollar business in the U.S. with nationwide digital advertising for political campaigns in 2022 exceeding $3 billion and over $1.5 billion spent on the 2020 presidential race alone. Thank you, Melissa. We have a left and right narrative. The left narrative is provided by Mashable. Musk's practice of reckless trial and error is why the company is running dry financially. After firing the majority of its staff and reinstating far-right conspiracy theorists, advertisers were rightfully scared away from the platform. Instead of acknowledging these poor business decisions, Musk has instead decided to retain his erroneous policies as he continues his pursuit of staying afloat. And the right narrative is brought to us by Washington Examiner. Beyond simply growing its revenue, this policy change will give conservatives even more of a voice on social media. After already opening up previously censored free thought surrounding COVID, disenfranchised political candidates and advocates will now be able to amplify their messages at a time when corporate government censorship is being brought to light. Our final story is out of the United States, and the FDA has allowed abortion pill sales at retail pharmacies. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, New York Times, the FDA, Reuters, and the White House. On Tuesday night, the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, announced a regulatory change to allow retail pharmacies to dispense abortion pills in U.S. states where medical termination of pregnancy is legal. Previously, the drug mifepristone, the first pill used in the two-drug regimen for medication abortions, could be dispensed only by a handful of mail-order pharmacies or by specifically certified doctors and healthcare facilities. The regulatory change allows pharmacies that complete a prescriber agreement form and agree to abide by specific criteria 
to dispense abortion pills in their stores and by mail order if patients carry a prescription from a certified prescriber. More than a dozen U.S. states have moved to ban or restrict abortion since the U.S. Supreme Court ended all federal protections for abortion when it overturned Roe v. Wade last year. This comes in the wake of President Biden's August 2022 executive order in response to the Supreme Court decision, aimed at protecting access to reproductive health care services. Thank you for the facts, Adam. We've got a right narrative spin that comes from The Spectator. This move endangers women with its dishonesty over the risks of abortion pills, which have led to at least 3,000 women suffering complications and 28 deaths since their approval and provides no protection to unborn children who may survive. The Biden administration's pro-abortion extremism will further allow retail pharmacies to funnel abortion pills into states where abortion is banned, an act that undercuts the Supreme Court's verdict. There's also a left narrative on this story provided by New York Times. The benefits of mifepristone far outweigh the risks, and this decision could change the conversation about abortion. As a step in the right direction for health equity, the regulatory change will empower patients across a broad spectrum, including people of color, immigrants, rural populations, and teenagers. Access to abortion pills isn't a magic solution to the end of abortion rights, but it can blunt the fallout. And the cynical narrative is provided by Politico. While the move paves a way to ensure women's legal access to abortion isn't entirely shut off, the question remains, can U.S. states block the use of abortion pills even though they are FDA-approved? The ball is in the retail pharmacy's court, which will now have to weigh whether or not to offer the drug following federal and state laws given the political controversies surrounding abortion. And the Metaculous Prediction community is going to close out our podcast today with a nerd narrative. They say there's a 4% chance that abortion will be banned nationally in the United States before 2030. Wow. Well, at least they gave it a long ways and oh, gosh, just a 4% chance. I, I really think they do some of these nerd narratives just, sometimes just to get us something to talk about at the they end are of so, the episode. And I wonder, if you, have you ever gone to the Metaculous site because it's... There's so many different um, predictions you can jump in on and weigh in on, and they're always changing. So. Can you actually vote on the on the predictions? I think if you're a member, you oh, can. you have to be a member of the Metaculous Society, right? Is, right. Now, is but that, it's kind of it, like a fun statistical. I don't know. It's kind of a nerdy way to gamble. You is know? it like the Masons? Do you think? You think it's something kind of creepy like that? They got uh, kind of rituals. To oh, be I a meticulous prediction. I predict that we'll never figure out what it actually is, a production the meticulous prediction community is. Are you saying there's a zero percent chance we're gonna we're gonna understand the meticulous nerds? And that's according to the meticulous prediction community. <laughs> unofficially. Unofficially, unofficially. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, January 5th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topsher, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Happy birthday to me! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to me!